morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. My name is Joseph Daughtry. I came to Liberty three years ago, and a few months after coming to Liberty, found Timberlake as my home. I've been here since then. It's been sweet to grow amongst all of you, especially here at Boundless, and I'm very excited to be able to teach today the things I've been learning about faithfulness um, and just going through the fruits of the Spirit with you all. So to start this morning, kind of to get our minds thinking, I want to share a few examples of different people um, to get us all thinking about this character quality that we're covering today. To start, there was a woman named Janet who was extremely talented and very motivated. She knew what she was striving for and worked diligently to achieve it with excellence. At work, with her family, and in her personal life, her priorities were all being met. This made her life extremely fruitful from the outside. She's one of those people who seem to always have her life together, from the classical education of her kids to the successful career in her field, alongside the completely gluten-free, organic, vegan, homemade, everything she was doing, everything right. By the end of the day, she did these things primarily because she desired to be praised and respected as a person who had it all together. This is what motivated her day in and day out to work in the way that she did. She was productive, but she was self-centered in her purpose. There's another man who had a completely different lifestyle. His name is Brad. He's young in college and is a character, to say the least. He spends most of his time either playing video games, sleeping, or going out to eat for something that is too expensive for how delicious it is. And his sleep schedule is varied as Lynchburg's weather patterns. He did not work a job, so he had time to focus on his classes. He would most of the time sleep through them. His homework would only barely be completed on time, and he aimed for test scores that would just barely get him a D or C in the class. Rules were guidelines to be followed only when he felt like it, and you could go on and on about the flaws um, just in his lifestyle. He had little consistency, productivity, or purpose in his life. It would probably be described as what the Bible calls a worthless fellow. But there's another man who is different. His name is Jim Elliott. This man came to know the Lord during high school, and upon coming to faith, he began to devote his entire life to the Lord. He took seriously the command that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. He worked out his school so he could go to a Bible college and train to be a missionary. With all his friends, he would exhort those who are Christian to grow in their walk with the Lord, and those who are not Christian and living in unrepentant sin, he would exhort them continually to believe the gospel, to repent, and to come to faith in Christ. Even in his physical exercise, um, he was focused on the Lord. One day he was running on a track, and a girl asked him why he was running, because it was back in the time where hobby jogging was not usual. And he said that, I'm disciplining my body unto the Lord so I can be a better missionary under harsh conditions. Everything he did was surrendered to the Lord. And because of that, everything that he did was exceedingly fruitful and done with excellence. And he did it because he was doing it with the Lord in mind. He still made mistakes. He still would sin. Every time he did, he would set his eyes on Christ, get up, and keep following him. In fact, he did so to such a degree that he gave his life on the mission field for the sake of the salvation of, of Indians in Ecuador. From his conversion in high school to his death on the field, Jim Elliott was devoted to the Lord in all that he did. And so with these three people in mind, I have a question. Who do you trust? Who would you trust to honor and love you as you share the burdens of your past? Who would you trust to help you, even if they were pressed for time and had a lot on their plate? Who would you trust to have a positive influence on you or your younger sibling that you have a burden of responsibility for? Who would you trust to disciple others into the image of Christ? Obviously, you would not trust Brad with much of anything. Why would you trust him with something as small as meeting out for even a cup of coffee if you can't trust him to wake up on time? 
how much less would you trust him with the personal parts of your life or highly consequential responsibility? His failure to complete small tasks makes him untrustworthy with any greater responsibility. Janet, despite being highly responsible, was not trustworthy ultimately because she was not devoted to the Lord. While she could be trusted to complete a chore for you or create a five-year business plan, she would not be trusted to care for someone at cost to herself or to be truly hospitable without self-interest or anything that comes as a character of Christ. Her love for her own reputation had kept her from being humble and also kept her from being honest with her, with her weakness so that one even knew any of her sin struggles. Who knows what she was doing when she was by herself and no one is watching. Her devotion to herself rather than to the Lord makes her untrustworthy and much, even though she excels in her visible responsibilities and is extremely productive. But Jen is exceedingly trustworthy. His devotion to the Lord created responsibility that made him trustworthy in both weighty ministerial tasks and the minuscule cutting of someone's grass or simply being a good, caring friend. He was humble and owned his mistakes, so he can know that he handles his sinful heart and mistakes well by taking to the Lord, relying on him, repenting, and growing. Jim was faithful with his own walk with the Lord, with his ministry, and with the daily tasks before him. And his faithfulness in these things made him trustworthy. And what these examples bring out is that the way we live or act induces others to trust us. And that is the word that the Bible uses as faithfulness. Faithfulness is trustworthiness. And this is the quality that we'll be exploring today. And true faithfulness is something that is only created by the Spirit. And we also know that we have a part in cultivating our lives. And that is what we'll be exploring today, what faithfulness is and how to cultivate it. So to understand how the Spirit creates faithfulness, we need to do, let's do a quick review of the Holy Spirit and His work in us. So we, re- we receive the Spirit when we come to faith. The Spirit enlightens our hearts to the truth as the gospel is brought to our attention. And by the gospel, he gives us the gift of faith in Christ. On the basis of this faith, the Spirit comes to us and dwells within our hearts and begins working in us to create the character of Christ. Once the Spirit comes to us, nothing we can do will ever cause him to leave us. The Spirit's indwelling presence is the sign and seal that we truly are saved and causes us to remember the inheritance that is reserved for us in eternity. He's with us not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of our faith. Please don't miss this. The Spirit of the Almighty and Eternal God has chosen to make his dwelling place with people of no account, you and I. The Almighty, Eternal, Holy, Splendid, and Majestic God created the beautiful galaxies and mountains, the rivers and the valleys, flying birds and grazing livestock, the God who formed man in his image, all with care, kindness, love, creativity, and purpose, and perfect knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. This great, sovereign, and unfathomable God has chosen to make his dwelling place with the lowly people. And now we can commune with God personally at any time within the recesses of our own hearts. How amazing is this gift of the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit then creates desires within us to conform our lives to Christ, to be holy. Every single that relates, every single thing that relates to your character, looking like Christ's, your love for others, your delight in his word, you name it. It is from his spirit, not from yourself. We are utterly dependent on him, yet he is always with us, cultivating within us all these things. And along with these desires, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to obey and fulfill these desires. He's the one who applies the immeasurable greatness of power that raised Christ from the dead to us personally and corporately. The power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that enables you to be patient with that boss who frustrates you 
to make wise decisions about who you spend time with and to resist even of the most enticing temptations. Truly, every temptation has a way of escape because God himself has sent his almighty power to us through his spirit. And we all know that Satan is real. Our adversary desires to destroy God's church, and we use all his forces to attempt to do so. The battle is present even now, and we are fighting. As Satan tempts us to live according to the flesh, we wage all-out war, not in our own strength and not in our own wisdom, but according to the marching orders of our general and commander, the Holy Spirit. As Clay talked about, the guidance of the Spirit is something that we are to keep in step in, as soldiers keep in step with the marching orders of their commanders. And so it's by the Spirit that we wage the war of faith. And through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. As we fight by the Spirit to keep in step with the Spirit, we do not lose hope, knowing that the character of Christ will be perfected in us one day, because we have the seal of the Holy Spirit. So regarding faithfulness in these things, we know that Satan is out to make us unfaithful. And we need to stand against him by being strong in the Spirit, specifically in faithfulness. To do so, we need to understand what faithfulness is and consider how we can cultivate it in our lives. So that brings us to our first question to examine today. What is faithfulness? We looked at the previous examples. We found that faithfulness can be defined as being trustworthy. This trustworthiness first can be clearly seen in the character of God. God is trustworthy above all things to glorify himself. At the center of everything that God does is his own glory. God saves the saints to display his riches of grace and kindness, and he condemns the unrepentant to show his holiness and hatred of evil. He created mankind, the nations, and each person, all to show his glory. Ultimately, he has promised to work all things for his glory when he promised to work all things for the good of his church and for his glory in the end. We can delight in the fact that everything God has done for his glory because he is worthy of it. If we desire to God to do anything less, we'd be idolaters because we'd be desiring for God to not have the glory that he deserves and for it to go to someone else. And if God were to glorify himself any less, then he too would be an idolater. To be consistent with his character, for God to be faithful, God must glorify himself. There is no other option. This is why Paul uses this wording in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness is God being trustworthy to never deny himself, but to display his glory for all to see. We can also learn about faithfulness from the character of Christ. There's much that can be said about Christ's faithfulness. Ultimately, similar to the Father, all he did was to the glory of the Father. He obeyed his Father's commands in the big and the small things, from submitting to his parents to doing all of his Father's will. Christ was faithful in all he said. He faithfully represented God and glorified him in the wisdom and the manner in which he spoke, so much so that no one could find fault with him and his word had authority. Christ imitated the Father as he saw the Father act. He submitted his will to that of the Father's, and all this overflowed in Christ being faithful in everything, even in the small things. For example, he prayed for long periods of time when no one is around. He resisted temptation when he was by himself in the wilderness. He cared for children, unclean lepers, tax collectors, and promiscuous women, the least of society at the time. He was faithfully loving in the relationships for their good that would even tarnish his reputation. He provided food for those outside of his responsibility when he fed the 5,000. And we could go on and on and on about the faithfulness of Christ. Christ is trustworthy to do the Father's will and glorify the Father, not only in the big things like giving his life on the cross, 
but in the little day-to-day interactions as well. And the Spirit is trustworthy to fulfill his roles as described in Scripture. As we talked about, the Spirit does many things. The roles he he possesses, he is trustworthy to fulfill each of them very well. There is not one of his children whom he does not lead, a saint he never fails to sanctify, a helpless disciple whom he does not help, or a forgetful son whom he does not remind of the truth. Truly, the Spirit is trustworthy in all he does. So if that is what trustworthy looks like in the character of God, what does it look like for us to be trustworthy as the church? And this brings us to our definition of what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is the quality of cultivating fruit with what God has entrusted us and confidence that what we sow in the Spirit will be rewarded eternally according to our measure of faithfulness. So I'm going to give that again after we go through Scripture to kind of understand where those things came from. And so, just kind of get the flavor of that, and then we'll go over it again. So, okay. Faithfulness is the quality of cultivating fruit with what God has entrusted us in confidence that what we sow in the Spirit will be rewarded eternally according to our measure of faithfulness. So let's unpack some scripture to get a better idea of what this looks like. So let's take a look at Daniel first. I remember reading through the Old Testament around the time that Pastor Farrell was going through the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings. After reading page of page of unfaithful um, man, after unfaithful man from Judges to Second Chronicles, I was pretty discouraged about the character of man. Even Solomon, the wisest man on earth at the time, was unfaithful in the end. I remember despairing at the lack of faithfulness there seemed to be, even in the Bible. And in some sense, this is a legitimate feeling. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Truly, a faithful person is rare. But Daniel is one of the few men in the Old Testament who has nothing bad written about him. In fact, the only record of being even associated with sin is when he took ownership of the sins of his captors as he interceded on their behalf as he saw judgment coming upon the nation. So Daniel was a faithful man and someone we can learn faithfulness from. And Daniel was faithful in that his devotion to the Lord led to excellence in his day-to-day endeavors. Even when his faithfulness endangered his life, he remained steadfast. For example, when Daniel and his friends were first brought into Babylon in chapter 1, they were placed with the best of the young men from Judah to go through a program that would assimilate them to the Babylonian culture and equip them to lead within the nation. And something about the food and the wine that the king was feeding them was unclean, and the author of Daniel wrote that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank in chapter 1, verse 8. He was resolved to honor God even when it was against the culture and the popular thing to do. God blessed their resolve and not only gave Daniel and his friends favor in the sight of the chief eunuch, but gave them excellence in other aptitudes as well that made them exceed all the other young men that they were with. Daniel's faithfulness in the little things led to blessing and much and also led to give him greater responsibility. And Daniel's faithfulness also seen in the count of Daniel in the lion's den towards the end of his life. At this point, Daniel was very successful due to the excellent spirit that was with him. And his excellence far surpassed that of any other person in Babylon. And because of this, the other officials that were serving the king were jealous of Daniel and his ability. So, out of their jealousy, they desired to destroy him. Daniel was so faithful that when the other officials tried to find some way to ruin Daniel, they could find nothing. He was absolutely blameless. The author of Daniel wrote, 
that the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Daniel was so faithful that the only way they were able to find a way to condemn him, condemn him was to make Daniel's faithfulness unlawful according to Babylonian law. Even when they did this, Daniel's devotion to the Lord was unwavering. Despite them making the king sign an edict that would require anybody who worshipped anything other than the king to be put to death, and despite this edict being passed, Daniel continued to worship the Lord and to pray three times a day on his knees, as was his custom, knowing that this would probably cost him his life. And upon breaking the law, Daniel was thrown into a den of lions to be devoured. But God blessed Daniel's faithfulness yet again and closed the mouth of the lions and preserved his life. The unfaithful officials were then thrown into the den with their entire families. And the author wrote that before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Daniel was faithful to God. He was devoted to the Lord in all that he did. And the Lord blessed him immensely in that, even in this present life. The unfaithful, however, were destroyed. Another key passage on faithfulness is in Matthew 25 and Luke 19. These are the parables of the servants and the talents slash minas. Um, we're going to spend most of the time in Matthew 25 and just reference Luke 19 a little bit. So if you want to turn to Matthew 25, you can do that now. And so we're going to breeze through these a little bit and just pull some nuggets of truth about faithfulness from these different passages. So in, this, in these um, parables, the master has these servants and before the master goes away on a long journey, he gives the servants his own possessions and entrusts them to him. He does not give specific directions on what they are to do, but he gives them his own property for them to steward. And so it remained his own, but he gave it to them and trusted them to use it well while he was gone. We can see this in verse 14 of chapter 25. He also gave each servant different amounts according to the servant's ability. To one he gave five talents, to the other he gave two talents, and to the other he gave one. It was a long time before the master settled accounts with the servants. When he did, those who had made a profit received a reward. Each were told, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The servant who did not make a profit from what the master had given him was told, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant to the outer darkness. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the servants who made a yield off of what they were entrusted, the five made five more. And the one who had two made two more. But then the one did not make anything else because he had buried it in the ground. The one who had done so was labeled unfaithful, even though he returned what was entrusted to him at the beginning. Because he did not take what he had been given and make a profit from it or make an increase from it. And in this way, he was told that he was wicked. He did not do what was right for a servant to do. He was lazy. He neglected his responsibility. And he was worthless. He did not bear any fruit in his life. Another thing to note is that there is no partiality in the master. Though the worthless servant had the least ability, seeing that he was only given one talent, 
he was still punished severely for his unfaithfulness, even with just one talent. The master was kind and gave them only what they could be faithful over. He had been set up for success, even though he had less ability than the rest. But still, the simple act of not even investing the talent in the bank rather than trading, that would have been at least acceptable, was not even done. So the worthless servant was punished because of his unfaithfulness, not because of his, not because of his ability. And what was entrusted to the servants, as well as the increase, was all returned to the master at the end. They never owned any of it, nor did they expect to keep it at any time. And due to the length of time, the delay that the master had in returning, the first two servants' reward was delayed, though they experienced the joy of seeing what was entrusted to them grow under their stewardship, and the worthless steward's punishment was also delayed. That means that we will not see all of the fruit of faithfulness or unfaithfulness. We will see some of it, but not all. Therefore, we need to be discerning of our own actions before we see fruit so as not to become habituated into unfaithfulness before the consequences become too severe. Another thing to note is that those who are faithful receive the favor of their master and everlasting joy. Furthermore, they are set over much according to the responsibility that they have shown in this life. And specifically in Luke 19, it says they are set over specific cities in the new kingdom according to their measure of faithfulness that they've shown. In that example, those who had made a reward of like 10 minas were given 10 cities, and he who had made a profit of 5 minas was given 5 cities to rule over. And so we see that the eternal reward that we are promised is directly proportional to our faithfulness in this life. And through this whole parable is a sense of fruitfulness, of growing, of planting, and reaping. Hear the words of Paul in Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So what we sow, we will reap. The first servant sowed well and reaped abundantly. The last sowed poorly and reaped accordingly. The last thing to note from this passage is that the master entrusted something of value to each servant and expected a return. Those who prove themselves to be trustworthy or faithful with how they steward these things of value were rewarded with more responsibility because they had shown themselves to be trustworthy of that responsibility. Those who prove themselves to be untrustworthy by their unfaithfulness were not only refused further responsibility, but were punished. And so I want to draw attention to one final passage. It's in Colossians 3, 23 through 25. And it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So in this verse is like a succinct summary of all the truths in the parable, but the fear of man is brought out in this verse specifically. Working heartily is not enough to be faithful. We must work specifically unto the Lord to be faithful with what God has given us. So we are faithful then. God will set us over much as a reward because Christ has made us trustworthy. So with all those things kind of in mind, let's review the definition of faithfulness again. Faithfulness is the quality of cultivating fruit with what God has entrusted to us, that he has given to us in confidence, that what we sow in the Spirit will be rewarded eternally according to our measure of faithfulness. 
I'm going to say that again. Faithfulness is the quality of cultivating fruit with what God has entrusted us and confidence that what we sow in the Spirit will be rewarded eternally according to our measure of faithfulness. So with that, how do we cultivate this trustworthiness and this faithfulness in our own lives and our own walk with the Lord's? So in general, applying faithfulness is simply looking at what God has given you, your talents or mine is, and then considering how you can maximize the gifts and opportunities for God's glory. There are many ways we can cultivate faithfulness in our lives because every responsibility, every gift God has given us is a chance to glorify him. So we won't try to hit everything, but we'll touch on some high notes. And so the first and most important way we can cultivate faithfulness is by first cultivating a deep devotion and fear of God. Above all else, this is what we need to focus on. The fear of God is the attitude that realizes and delights in God's ultimate purpose, his glory and everything. Those who are so driven by the conviction that God must be glorified according to his supreme holiness are the most faithful. Surely we would all say that God deserves to be glorified. But our actions then display how glorious we truly believe God to be. Those who live their lives with little thought of the glorious attributes of God rarely desire to submit to him in every little thing. But those who embrace by faith the majesty and splendor of God, those seek to please him in everything and show his greatness to everyone and everything. The greatness of God is what motivates obedience in the small and mundane. And specifically regarding faithfulness and knowing God's character, it is sweet to meditate on Proverbs 12, 22. It says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. So one author wrote, God cares about faithfulness, the steadfast commitment to honor the Lord in a thousand simple ways. So cultivating fear of the Lord, specifically around God's care about faithfulness, is the first thing we must do to cultivate faithfulness. And within this, we need to develop an understanding of what Christ's faithfulness means to us. We must understand Christ's faithfulness if we too want to be faithful. I have many, heard many of you say, and I'm included in this, of the encouragement that has come from going through this series of the fruit of the Spirit. But alongside this encouragement has been a deep conviction or the failure to do many of the things that we are learning about. And especially I've seen, and at times, my own outright rebellion against the Spirit. And so in these ways, I know that all of us feel the conviction of being unfaithful. And this is why we need to have our hearts and minds set on Christ. He is the one who is faithful. And we must remember that when God looks on us, he does not see our own faithfulness, for we can do nothing on our own, but he sees Christ. And Christ's faithfulness is the only grounds we have for hope of being faithful and having even joy and being counted faithful. And as we think about having the life that's devoted to the Lord, this leads to faithfulness and the small everyday things of life. This leads to fruit, not only in eternity, but right now, that is sweeter than anything else that this world has to offer. The purpose that comes to your life from living in confidence of the glory of God is so much more meaningful than any other thing. Living for any career goal for your own glory is not satisfying. Whatever goals you achieve, whatever you reach, at the end of the day, you will find that it's just empty and vain for the things of this world are passing away. Any relationship that you invest in for your own gain, for your own delight, for your own purposes, at the end of the day, it's still passing away. Even the sweet relationships that we have in this life are not ultimately satisfying, and they do not last um, unless 
their eternal friendships in Christ. And so taking all these things and submitting them to Christ and finding that purpose that is ultimately found in the Lord gives such confidence in daily decisions and such joy and knowing that your life is becoming eternally significant for the glory of God and learning to lose yourself in that is the only source of true joy and purpose. And the fruit that comes from that, the peace, just the daily humility and contentedness is unparalleled in anything else. And so that is why we have to have the devotion and the fear of the Lord above all else um, as we seek to cultivate this faithfulness. And so the antithesis of the love of God, of the fear of God, is the love of man and the fear of man. This kills true faithfulness. Faithfulness should be driven by the godly ambition of glorifying God in everything. But when ambition loses God-centeredness, it is no longer faithfulness, no matter how productive it is. Godless ambition can look like faithfulness sometimes, though. When you surround yourself with Christian friends, like hanging out at church or church events, then it becomes cool to be godly. The more that you grow in your understanding of Scripture, the more you grow in holiness, wisdom, self-control, all the things of the character of Christ, or at least in mimicking these things, you become more respectable among your friends, you become the more attractive romantic option, and you feel like you're becoming this awesome person as people praise you. And in this circumstance, it is easy to turn your eyes off of the fear of God and start living for the fear of man. And what is scary sometimes is that the lifestyle that comes from this for a time period looks the same as the heart that truly fears the God, fears God, even though the heart is off kilter. Despite the appearances, these people are not faithful. I struggle with this a lot, just going to Liberty University and spending so much time here at church last year. And so many things I was doing that started out with a desire to fear the Lord and walk with him as those things bore fruit. And as people praised me for them, I started to then live for that praise rather than live out of devotion for the Lord. But I didn't notice it at first because my actions were still the same. Devotions and time with the Lord were still happening, still meeting up with guys to try to push them towards Christ. The actions of my day-to-day life were the same, but my heart had veered off course. And it's something that we must be wary of, because I know that many of you are very committed to this church. Many of you also go to Liberty, where it's normal to be Christian. And as you spend more and more time with the body, it's more and more easy to start to live for the approval of people even in your church, rather than out of faithfulness to the Lord. And so, just be wary of your hearts, um, and set them on the fear of the Lord always. And if the fear of God is absence, and the fear of man does not drive us to ambition, it will surely lure us to complacency. While we certainly can have selfish ambitions, we can also just have selfish laziness. Without the truth of the weight of God's glory driving us to action, we will often sit and do nothing when we should be living out the good works that God has prepared for us with zeal. If we give into this laziness, we become the fool of Proverbs uh, 1.32, which it says the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. This laziness, as seen in the life of the worthless servant, not only fails to bring a fruitful life, but it actually destroys the person who indulges in it. Not only must we be faithful um, in cultivating a fear of the Lord, but we also have to be faithful with our own hearts, all in all. We are told to eat and drink for the glory of God in 1 Corinthians 10.31. I don't know about you, but the glory of God is not always on my mind as I'm doing the small, mundane things of my life. Not unless I'm careful to obey, that is. 
So how do we be careful? We are careful primarily by guarding our hearts. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What shapes our heart determines what comes out of it. Remember again the words of Paul to the Galatians, that what we sow is what we will also reap. What little things are you allowing to your heart that prevent you from being faithful in the little things and in turn prevent you from being faithful in the big things? In your music, in the social media, in the movies and shows you watch, in your conversations and the activities you do with your friends, what are you letting in your heart? What are you allowing yourself to meditate on, to dwell on, to think upon? Remember that you, we are called to think only of what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, we're supposed to think about these things, as Paul exhorts us in Philippians 4, eight. These small things that we neglect and that we allow into our hearts have a big impact on what we choose to think, choose to say, and just on our hearts as a whole. And then those effects are faithfulness in the little things. But likewise, do not underestimate the power of meditating on a verse during your lunch break or being consistent and sincere in your short prayers before meals and perhaps before bed. It's often the little acts of faithfulness in cultivating a relationship with God that result in the greater fruitfulness. And so look at just the opportunities that you have in your life to maybe meditate on an extra scripture, maybe in between leaving work and getting into your car. Just pull out your phone, look up a Bible verse, spend five minutes thinking about it. Take extra opportunities to just text a friend, pray for them, set reminders on your phone. And it's those little reminders throughout the day that will cultivate a care in your heart to watch over what truly is going on in your heart, um, to cultivate that fear of God. That will then give the weight of who God is. That will drive you to be faithful in the little things when no one is watching. And we can also take care to be faithful in specific situations in life just by making some simple, plan- simple plans. Because there are many areas of life that we tend to just not give thought to, either out of busyness or negligence. And these things allow us to be caught off guard when we're faced with a chance, chance to either be faithful or unfaithful. So not only are we to be careful with our hearts, we need to be considerate of what opportunities we have before us to be faithful, especially noticing the difficult ones and making a plan of what it would look like to imitate Christ's faithfulness in these situations. We also need to be careful with our schedules. We are all limited, finite people. We cannot do everything as much as we like to think that we can. In fact, we can only do what God desires for us to accomplish. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. So we should seek to discern what is the will of God, be faithful in only what he would have us do, rather than trying to be faithful in everything and ending up doing everything poorly. Better to be faithful in a little than unfaithful with much. And so I would like to press in on just some motivations now. Um, to cultivate this faithfulness. So probably one of the greatest ones is meditating on eternal reward versus eternal wrath. This is probably one of the most sobering yet encouraging motivations for faithfulness. When we understand that nothing in life is ours and that we should steward it all into God's kingdom for his glory, then we will be rewarded like the servants were. Specifically, we're told as we show trustworthiness with the small things of this life, then we will be entrusted with cities to manage in Christ's eternal kingdom. The thought of standing before the throne of God by the merits of Christ and hearing the words of God himself, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Does a more glorious thought exist to ponder the possibility for wretched sinners like us given the privilege to serve God on earth, to then be rewarded 
with eternal pleasures in eternity. And so pressing this a little more, as we've all taken part in this church, we've been able to minister to one another. The teaching of Clay and Rich have blessed us immensely. And as they've been faithful to serve us, our faithfulness has been increased. So in their faithfulness, they have stored up eternal reward for themselves. And out of that, we have also become more faithful and have created eternal reward for ourselves as well. The point of that is, don't hear this opportunity of eternal reward and think, wow, I have an opportunity to store up eternal reward for myself. The decisions that you make to disciple one another in your church and those around you have an impact on their eternal reward as well. Like how we steward our lives can store up eternal reward, not only for ourselves, but for others. I cannot think of anything more meaningful than that. And so pressing into that and meditating on that is one of the sweetest things that we can do. There's lots more that we could talk about. Um, but at the end of the day, who are those who are truly trustworthy? They're people who know that they're deceived, unreliable, and corrupt in themselves, yet entrust themselves to the promises of a trustworthy God. Who are those who are faithful? They are those who see their constant doubts, their waywardness of heart, and deep iniquity, and cast themselves in faith on the faithfulness of Christ. Those who are faithful are the ones who do not walk in their own strength, or in the conception of their own possessions, or even for their own glory, but submit themselves entirely to God, desiring only for him to be magnified, being content to be lost in his greatness. It is the humble heart that is centered on our walk, solid God, that is faithful. Hear the exhortation of the author of Hebrews. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray.